Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 is where we'll begin. And the word of the Lord reads, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. The author and president of the Barna Group, um, David Kinnaman, once wrote, Being salt and light demands two things. We practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, and yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. And if we don't hold up both truths in tension, you invariably become useless and separated from the world that God loves. Charles Blondin is a name I think that every Christian should know. You see, in the summer of 19, excuse me, in the summer of 1859, Charles Blondin walked across a quarter-mile tightrope that spanned the breadth of the Niagara Falls. And not only did he do it once, but he actually did it several times. Over and over again, he walked the tightrope that was 160 feet above the falls below. And over and over again, he crossed the tightrope from Canada into the United States and from the United States back into Canada. And hundreds of people watched him in amazement. And he didn't just walk across. One time he walked across in a sack. Another time he walked across on stilts. Another time he, 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 he went across on a bicycle. And then one time, he walked across carrying a stove, and he made an omelet as he went. In fact, on July 15th, Blondin walked across the tightrope into Canada backwards, and he returned pushing a wheelbarrow. And then one time, he, he, he pushed the, the wheelbarrow across the, the tightrope, right, while he was blindfolded. And so... It seemed like there wasn't anything he couldn't do on a tightrope. In fact, his onlookers were always captivated, and they oohed, and they awed. And, and Charles had proven that he had mastered this skill, that, that he had mastered the tightrope. And, and, and there became this sense of confidence in his abilities, like he could do whatever he wanted to do on a tightrope. In fact, there seemed to be not even any doubt in people's minds anymore. But then one day he asks a question. He says, do you believe I can carry a person across this tightrope in the wheelbarrow? And, of course, the crowd said, yes, yes, we believe that you can do that. Do you really believe that? And he says, yes, we absolutely believe it. And then he asked the important question. If you really believe, which one of you will get into the wheelbarrow? And no one did. Now, what's the point? The point is actually two things. Number one, the story of Charles Blondin paints a real picture of what faith is. The crowd had watched his daring feats, and they said they believed, but their actions proved that they really didn't, which is a picture of the Christian life. A confession only does not make a person a Christian. Yes, profession is, and confession is part of it, but real belief always manifests itself in our actions, a point to keep in mind as we go along this morning. 
Number two, the often overlooked truth in this story is also the same overlooked truth in the Bible and the overlooked truth in about our faith. It's the important idea of tension. You see, Blondin was able to cross this tightrope because of tension. Tension between two points that are pulling against each other. You take a rope and you anchor it to one point and you put it under a lot of strain and put a lot of force against it and then you have tension. You can't walk a tightrope unless you have it. And so tension or, or two forces pulling against each other right, is an important idea and an important reality. And as you can see, it's not just in tightropes, but it, we, we see it all the time and even in our faith. In fact, one of the most important points of tension in the entire Bible is found in John chapter 1, verse 14. John says, And the Word became flesh, which is really the tension between God, I mean, you know, um, Jesus being fully God and fully man. So the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If someone were to ask you, where do you see tension in the Bible? You point them right here, John 1.14. Because Jesus is, both, is full of both of those things, grace and truth. Two ideas that seem to be opposing to one another. Jesus forgives, that's grace, but he also says, go and sin no more, that's the truth. There's a tension here, a balance here. And we find that tension throughout the entire Bible. You see, Jesus is both the lamb and the lion. Jesus is, was, he came to be a servant to die to save sinners, but he will come back with a sword and he will judge the world. God is a God of unending grace, but he is a God of terrible, awful wrath. Just look at the cross. The cross is where you see the intersection between the tension of God's love and God's justice. God loves people, but he hates sin. And that's the balance and the tension that we must always keep in mind with respect to our faith. Now, what does this have to do with our current series that we're in titled All In, or Being on Mission for Christ? Well, quite a lot, as we're going to discover as we go along this morning. But before we get too far in that way, let me just remind you of a couple things of where, where we've come from. In this series, we've been talking about the mission of Jesus Christ and the part that we, as believers, are called to play in that mission. And the first week of this series, we discovered that the mission of Christ is to save sinners. That's exactly why he came. He didn't come so that you can have a pain-free, problem-free life. Right? If that's what you've been told, then, then someone's lying to you. He didn't come so that you can have all the material possessions you ever desired. That is not why he came. He didn't come here so that all of your problems here on earth will be solved. That is not why he came. He came to solve your greatest problem. He came to, to save us from our sins and the wrath of God that abides on us because of sin. As, as pastor and author Max Lucado once said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need would have been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, he would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. Jesus came to save sinners. That is his mission. And what we came to understand is that when we get saved, Jesus didn't simply rescue us for us. 
He rescues us so that we can join him on this mission. You see, you were saved not simply for you. God saved you for God because he created you. And he saved you for his glory because everything he does, he does for his glory. And he saved you for his plans and purposes. And he has a plan and purpose for every one of you. And that plan and purpose includes him using your redeemed life in a way that ultimately will reach other people around you. You were saved beyond mission for Christ. And that's what we covered in the first week. And then in two weeks, in week two, we talked about our part in the mission. Because guess what? We're not Jesus, right? Our parts are different. Jesus' part in the mission was to go into the world I mean, and, and to live a perfect life that we couldn't live, fulfill the law that we couldn't fulfill, and die on a cross to pay a penalty that we couldn't pay. And then come back from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sins. That's the part that Christ played. Our part in the mission is to, to obey him and go into all the world and make disciples. That's exactly what he says. Go into all the world, to go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. We're to go out there and we're to share the hope of Jesus Christ, the good news, with other people. That's evangelism. And we're to help them to put their trust in Jesus. And once they do that, then we're to help them to get plugged into a local church. That's what the baptism part is about, is getting them plugged into a body of believers. And then we're to teach them to learn how to actively obey and follow Jesus so they can go out into the world and make more disciples. That's our part. We're called by Christ to make disciples. As we wrapped up that um, message, we talked about the fact that the Christian life is really about two phases. You are either being discipled and being trained up in your faith, or you are to be making disciples, training other people up in the faith. That's the Christian life. Right? It's about following Christ by teaching other people to follow Christ, to teach other people to follow Christ. That is his plan to accomplish his mission through us. And so, to this point in this series, we've really laid a pretty solid foundation to work off of. We know what the mission is. Christ's mission is to save sinners. We know our part is to make disciples. And we know at least a little bit about what that involves, which is evangelism and baptism and teaching. Right? And so with that, we have kind of a rough framework or working outline of, of what we need you know, and, 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 and that we've developed on how to live this mission out, right? how we can be all in. But, but there's still actually a number of questions that still need to be explored. Like where is the mission of Christ taking place? I mean, is it in my house? Is it in my neighborhood? Is, I mean, is it in another city? Is it in some other country? I mean, where do we go to be on mission for Christ? Or how about the question, how do I actually get involved in the mission of Christ? I mean, what am I actually supposed to do? I know, I mean, I, I know that I'm supposed to share my faith and help people get plugged into the church, and, and I know that, that I need to help them to, to learn to follow Christ, but what does that really look like in my practical day-to-day -day perspective? Because I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a, a, a career, you know, evangelist. I mean, I'm a regular person doing a regular job, and i got to take my kids to the doctor, and i got all this other stuff. How does this actually work itself out in my normal, everyday life? Well, as far as the question where goes, as far as that's concerned, the, the very short answer is everywhere. Right? We are called to be, to be a part of the mission of Christ both locally and globally. Our, our job as followers is to make disciples everywhere. Now, 
That's a really, really big conversation. Um, but we're not going to tackle that conversation this morning. We're actually going to talk about that in the coming weeks. In fact, before we get to the where part of this and, and the how question, there's actually another dimension of being all in that we need to look at. There's, there's something else that we need to begin to see and understand and embrace about, about you and I and what it means for us to be all in for Christ. And that dimension is simply who we are in the mission of Christ. I don't mean who we are as individuals. I don't mean who we are as as people that we know. I mean who we are in Christ. Because who we are, or better, what we are, in Christ will ultimately shape how we see and understand our mission and how we do our part to accomplish this mission. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And and I I think that a great place for us to start is in the text of Matthew chapter 5. Now, before we get into the text, let me just take a quick moment and set this up because as we always talk about, in fact, hopefully one of the things that you will always remember me talking about is whenever we study a part of Scripture, it is important for us to establish the context. How we understand the words of Christ and how we understand the intent of the author right, is always rooted and always grounded in the context. And so the first thing we need to be clear about is the theme and the purpose of the book of Matthew. And what we, what we know is that Matthew was written for a clear and simple purpose. And that purpose was to make very plain that that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the reigning king of the world. And this is important because because in the beginning of chapter 5, Matthew records Jesus delivering his very famous Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and And in this sermon, Jesus lays out for his followers what kingdom life is to be like for those who trust in Christ. This is Jesus, the king, making a royal proclamation, a declaration about how people are to live in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God right here, right now. And and this sermon opens up with a section called the Beatitudes, which actually, by the way, is a subject that we covered in a series titled Hashtag Blessed. But it's the part of scripture that most people, especially Christians, are, are familiar with at least a little bit because Jesus makes several very important and very memorable and even provocative statements that begin with the phrase, blessed are, right? We've heard that before. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, he says, and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how Jesus opens up this sermon. And what what we come to understand is that from the very beginning of this sermon, Jesus is telling us that life in the kingdom is to be radically different than the rest of the world. I mean, think about it. For for those who follow Christ, life is to be radically different. I mean, 
I mean, blessed are those who are hungry and persecuted is what he's saying. Right? Blessed are those who mourn. Life in the kingdom is radically different. And, and that's the point that Jesus makes through the entire sermon. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus you know, tells us not only to love our neighbor, but he says to love our enemies. That's radically different. You don't think it's radically different? Then do it. <laughs> right? That's why we struggle with it, because it's radically different. He says, he says, hey, adultery isn't just limited to cheating on your spouse. It's also how you lust for other people. Again, radically different from what the world's telling us and selling us. Jesus said, if someone hurts you, don't retaliate. That's pretty radical. And he says, don't focus your attention on your financial security by laying up treasures for yourself on the earth, but lay up yourself treasures in heaven. Again, radically different than what the world is telling us. And, 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 and that is the picture. This is the picture. A radically different life. That is the context of the scripture that we're going to look at. So we need to look at this text with the understanding that Jesus, Jesus is calling all of us to live radically different lives in the rest of the world. And so with that in mind, let's look at the text again. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There is a lot here. In fact, there's more here in this text than we can tackle and cover today. In fact, this is one of, those, one of those texts that you could spend, again, a whole sermon series on or even, you know, several months just studying out because there's, there's a lot of depth here. But, but, but there's two important statements that I really want to focus on because there's something here that you need to see. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, these two Statements, if you will understand them, if you will grasp the implications of what he is saying to you here, it will shape everything you know about being on mission for Christ. Right? Because I want you to hear what he's saying. I want you to hear the wording again. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Right? There, are, there are important truths in this statement that are so easy for us to overlook because, because there's a lot here. I mean, when we read this, this, this scripture, we look for definitions. I mean, we, we look and ask questions like, what is salt and what's he talking about? Salt, right? We, we look and we say, what does it mean sitting on a hill? What, what's he talking about? There's so much to look at and so much to take apart here and there's so many ways to, 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 to examine this that we overlook the foundational truths in this text, and because we overlook the foundational truths, this text usually ends up becoming interpreted as an exhortation for us to go out and do something. That's usually how this text gets preached. You hear, I mean, I've probably been guilty of it myself. You hear preachers say, you're the salt of the earth, so get yourself out of the salt shaker, go out into the world, and do what salt's supposed to do. Well, what does salt do? Well, it flavors, right? It enhances, it preserves. So go out there and get busy flavoring the world. Go out there and get busy preserving the world. That is the admonition. You're to go out and, and, and be light 
you know, to the world. So get busy doing good deeds so that people can, can see them and glorify God. That's the message this gets turned into. Right? It gets turned into a list of things for us to do. That's the direction that we tend to go with a text like this. And, and understand, that's not all bad. Okay? I, I, that's not a criticism. Right? Because there's some truth behind this. Because ultimately, we need to get you know, into the wheelbarrow. Right? We need to actually not say it, but we need to get into the wheelbarrow and, and take action in our faith. Because our faith really isn't even demonstrated right, in, in just our words and what we say, but rather how we actually live. So Jesus says, right, you'll know them by their fruit. So, so this is not a completely bad application here. Right? But the problem is, is if that's our understanding, if that's where we start, this application misses the foundational truth found right in the text. And notice, I want you to hear, that, that, that Jesus doesn't say, go and be the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, go and become the light of the world. He says, you are, present tense, right now, in this moment, you are the salt of the earth. You are, present tense, the light of the world. And I don't want you to miss this. See, this is not an exhortation for you to do something. This is a revelation. This is a revelation that you, that if you belong to Jesus, you are something. It's not about doing. It's about being. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are or what you are in Christ. This is so important for us to understand. Because this is the place where we can lose sight of the gospel with good intentions. This is the place where we can lose sight of the gospel. This is a place where we can make the Christian faith into something that it wasn't supposed to be made. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not about you doing something. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. You didn't do anything. You became something. For, we, look here, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. He created us initially and then he recreated us in Christ. We didn't do anything. We became something by the grace of God. And what you need to understand is this becoming something, this recreated in Christ is a radical transformation. It's a fundamental transformation in who you are. That's why Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born physically is a radical transformation. And if you don't believe me, ask your mama. Right? She'll tell you. It's a radical transformation. And, and, And as radical as that is, Being born again is even more radical than that because you were spiritually dead, as Paul says, in your sins. You were dead. And God, the Holy Spirit, supernaturally brought you to life. It's a radical transformation in your very nature. That's why Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you've been radically transformed into who and what you are. And that's why, why you can live 
a radically different life because Jesus made you radically new. The radically different life that he says, talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, you can live that way. The kingdom life is, a radically, is radically different than the rest of the world. And the reason why you can live that way is because you have been radically changed by God into something new. And so Jesus is talking about not what you do. It is who you are or what you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But there's, but there's still more here to see. Okay? Because Jesus didn't say you are a grain of salt. He didn't say that you were one of the lights. Okay? He says you are the salt. You are the light. This is another idea that we need to wrap our heads around. Because you're not an imitation of something. You're not a make-believe copy of something. You are that something. In your nature, you are that something. And I, I don't want to overstate the case here, but being a Christian is all about being transformed into what? The image of Jesus Christ. Being made more and more into his image. You, you come to faith in Christ. Right? When that happens, he begins to transform you and Jesus himself comes to live inside of you. And when that happens, your life begins to change and begins to become like a living image of Christ himself. In fact, that's what the word Christian means. It means Christ-like. Your life becomes a real living image of the transformational power of Jesus. Your life becomes a real-world picture of grace and love and mercy. Your radical, transformed life is a representation to the world around you of the hope that's in Jesus Christ. When you share the love of Christ, when you, share, when you show compassion and mercy to people, when you love your enemies, when you proclaim the word of God, and when you declare the gospel, the, the people around you they're not just encountering you. They are encountering God through you. I hope you understand that. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. When you go out into the world, people encounter God through you. That is what you were saved for. That people would encounter the living God through you. Now, that is a truth I believe should humble you. I mean, there's no room for the Christian to be a Christian and be arrogant at the same time, right? Because this is a truth right here that should humble you. This is a truth that should drive you to your knees in prayer because if you belong to Christ, you are a living, breathing image of Him. You are His ambassador. And how you live and what you do either adds to or detracts from how other people see and receive Christ. Because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But there's still more. I want you to notice the words earth and world here. You're the salt of the earth. Not part of it, all of it. You're the light of the world. Not some of it, all of it. You see, your calling and your mission and your transformed life have universal and global implications. 
You are not simply to be light that shines the hope of Christ just for some people. You are to be the light that shines for Christ for everyone you come in contact with. You're not to just be a preserving influence around the people that you like the most. You are to be a preserving influence for everyone you come in contact with. Every person in your life, every person you work with, every person you hang out with, every person you go to school with, Every person you bump into at a football game, every person you encounter when you go to town shopping, every person that you connect with on your phone or in social media, every friend, every relative, every neighbor, every stranger, every enemy, you are, a, are the light and salt for all of them. All of them. Every single interaction that you have in your life is an opportunity for someone to encounter Christ. Every, every interaction, including those difficult conversations at work between you and your boss, including when that person cuts you off in traffic, including when that lady accidentally bumps into the back of your heels with her shopping cart, Right? Or when your neighbor or your family member stops by unannounced when you're just tired and, and you just want to veg and you don't want to deal with people. Every, every interaction has a potential to be an encounter with Christ. Because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And man, I know that that's a lot to take in. And I don't want to lose you in the weeds here. And I certainly don't want to overstate what the text is saying, but you and I need to understand that in these verses, Jesus is making a radical statement, not about what you do, but about who you are. He's making a radical statement about who you are and what you are in relationship to the rest of the world. He is saying, if you are in Christ, if you are part of his kingdom, then you, by definition, are radically different than the rest of the world. That's the thrust of what he's saying here is you are radically different than the world itself, which means you are not. If you're a Christian, you are not the world. Because what is the world? It is dark and getting darker. I mean, we don't, we don't have to have a rocket scientist to prove, prove that to us, right? It's dark and it's getting darker. But because Christ is in you, you are the light of the world. Because of the transforming power of Christ, you are the opposite of what the world is supposed to be. And you, right, are not the earth. The earth is dying and decaying and rotting. But you, because of Christ in you, you're the salt of the earth. You're the preserving influence of God in the world. Because Christ is in you, you have the ability to be a preserving influence in your community and in your home and in your family and in the lives and the families of those that you come in contact with. If you belong to Jesus... Because of the changes that happen to you spiritually and supernaturally, if you are a Christian, then, then you by your very nature are radically different than the world. And it is that difference in you that makes you who you are and what you need to be in order to be on mission for Christ. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These are two metaphors that help us to see that not only are we called to be radically different, but we are radically different in our very essence and nature. 
And these two metaphors will help us to see not only who we are in Christ, but also how we're supposed to relate to the rest of the world while we're on mission for Christ, which now is where the tension comes in. Because I want you to hear what the rest of what Jesus says now. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt isn't salty, then it's worthless. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, because when you put it under a basket, the light goes out. But on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want you to hear this. So, on the one hand, Jesus tells us who we are in him. On the other hand, he tells us that, that, that we, who we are has practical, real-world implications in how we live. That because we're salt and in, in, in light, then our lives should reflect the fact that we're salt in life. Right? That, if, that if we're in Christ, we should be living and acting and a preserving influence in the world around us. Which means how we live and act and behave still matters. And what he says is, let your light shine. And the way that you let your light shine is to what? Do good works. We're to do good works so that people can see them and glorify God. In fact, Paul says, for, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them or do them. It's part of God's plan for us to do these things. It's part of our, our God's will for our lives that we do good works. It's part of his design that we glorify him through, through doing these things. But wait a minute. You just said it's not about what we do. It's about who we are. And that's true. But ultimately, who you are will manifest itself in what you do. If you're the salt of the earth, as Jesus says, then you will live and act in a way that enhances the lives of others and, and preserves the good. If you were really the light of the world, as Jesus says that you are, you will live in a way that, and act in a way that will shine forth the light of Christ for other people to see. Who you are always affects what you do. Who you are determines how you live and how you act. Who you are shows up in your actions and your attitudes and how you treat other people. Now, here's the part that we begin to have trouble with. <laughs> because if we begin to look at our own lives and we'll be honest with ourselves, we'll be like, wait a minute. We don't always see that, we see that we don't always act in a preserving manner. In fact, sometimes we contribute to the decay in the world around us. And we don't always shine the light of hope of Christ in the world around us. Sometimes we're actually downright dark ourselves. So what, what does that say about us then? I mean, if, if who we are determines what we do, right? And what we do, if it's not always good and God-honoring, then what does that say then about us? And there are really two possible answers. 
The first possible answer is, you're not a believer. And I know that's not the one anybody wants to hear, right? But, but that's, that might be the truth. Yes, a person is saved by grace through faith. But if all your Christian life is a profession of faith where you say, I believe, but you didn't actually get into the wheelbarrow, and you don't actually like trust in Jesus actively, then you might not really know him. If, if, if there's not a, not a desire in you to repent of sin, and if there's nothing in you that urges you on towards shining the light of Christ for the world to see and preserving the, the, what's good in the world around you, then you might not actually believe in Christ. And, and, and you might not actually be a believer, and I know that's hard to hear. But it's not my job to, to say easy, happy things. My job is to tell the truth, and the truth is faith without works, as James tells us, is dead. Right? We're not saved by our works. That doesn't have, that's not, we, we, you know, we're not saved by what we do, but what we do bears witness to the authenticity of our faith. True faith in Christ is always bearing fruit in our lives. And so if there is no fruit, then they're probably not faith. Jesus says you are salt and light. And if your light doesn't show any signs of that, then you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask the question, am I really saved? Did I really understand the, the gospel? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves see to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, if you're a believer, then Christ is in you. And if Christ is in you, your life will change. And your life will bear fruit somehow. That's the first possible answer. The second possible answer is, you're still growing. You're not there yet. You see, in this life, we still live in tension. The tension between already and not yet. The Christian life, this side of heaven, is about already and not yet. If you put your trust in Christ, you have been saved, and heaven is your reward, it is your inheritance, it belongs to you, but you do not live there yet. It's yours nonetheless, but you're not there yet. If you're a believer, you are a new creation, but the old you is still dying and kicking and screaming. If you are in Christ, you live by the Spirit, but the flesh still tries to exert its influence over you. I mean, you may be saved from the penalty of sin, but you have not been rescued yet from the presence and the effects of sin. That's the, right? That's the truth. You may have been given power over sin, but it still fights back, and sometimes it overpowers you. The truth is, when we got saved, we weren't automatically made perfect. Man, it would have been easy. Would it have been easy? It'd be easy to convert everybody to Jesus too, right? Just like that. I believe, boom, perfect. Right? I mean, I know my wife thinks I'm perfect, but, you know, sometimes. But the fact is, we're not. And so we, we, we're still growing. That is called sanctification. Right? Where God, the Holy Spirit, works inside of you, slowly changing you inside out, remaking you into the image of Christ. And so you may be saved, 
And you may be even radically transformed into salt and light, but you might not always act like that because you're still growing. But understand, that's what you're called to. You're called to be on mission for Christ. You're called to make disciples. And as such, you're called to live as salt and light in the world. We're called to live radically different, transformed lives because we have been transformed by Christ himself. Now, we don't, when we don't see this in our lives, when we, when it, we don't see it, the evidence of it, or we don't see it consistently, maybe we see some of it, but we don't see it consistently, there's a tendency in us to look at verses like this and say, I need to get busy being salt and light. I need to get busy doing something. I need to work harder. I need to do more. I need to try harder. I need to be nicer. I need to be more loving. I need to be more caring. I need to be, I need to be, I need to do, I need to be, I need to do, right? And you can fill in the blank and you make this list as long as you want to, but that is not the answer. That's not what we're to do. That is not the solution. When you don't see in your life the fruit of who Jesus is calling you to be and who he says that you are, the answer is not try harder or, or not to do more. The answer is always to draw nearer to Christ. The answer is always the gospel. You see, the problem with, with Christianity today is we think the gospel is the entrance into the church and then once we master that, then it's all different. It's always the gospel. Whether you're an unbeliever or you're, or you're still growing, the answer is, is to take all of your hope and all of your trust and take it completely off of you and what you can do yourself and place it all, every bit of it, on Jesus Christ. That is the answer. The answer is, to, is never, hey, you need to do more stuff. Hey, you need to get more organized. Hey, you need to follow more rules. The answer is you need to follow Jesus and the only way that you're going to follow him is to be close to him. Which, by the way, if you're going to make disciples of other people, right, that's what you need to teach them. So your job is not to teach people to be salt and light. Your job is to teach people to be close to and trust in Jesus Christ. Because it's not what you do. It is who you are in Christ that matters. I'm going to say that one more time. It's not what you do. It's who you are in Christ that matters. But what you do, what you do reveals who you are. And that's the tension point. <laughs> you are called to be salt and light. Is that how you live? Now, What do we do in light of that? Because I know, like, Pastor Sherman, it'd just be easier if he's give me a list of things to do. I can go home and do them. Like, I can, I can knock them out this afternoon. I've got plenty of time, right? Can you just, like, give me a checklist so I know that I'm good every day, right? I mean, that's, that would be easy if the Christian faith was like that, but it's not. Right? So what do we do in light of this? Well, what we need to do is we need to take some time. This is the hard one. We need to take some time and reflect. That means you need to stop and you need to think. And you need to get serious with yourself. We need to examine our hearts. Right? We need to like, let the world stop around us and stop thinking about you know, all the other things that we need to do and you know, who's playing what game. And we need to examine our hearts and examine who we are. And we need to ask some important questions. Right? It's, it's very healthy for you to always ask the question, did I really get in that wheelbarrow? Just check in. 
It's always healthy to, 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 to examine your heart. Did I, did I really trust in Christ? Did I, or did I simply make a profession of faith? And if you're in the wheelbarrow and you're trusting in Christ, a good question is, are you living in a way that's a preserving influence for those around you? And are you shining the light of Christ in the world around you? Are you ministering to the people that you come in contact with? Are you standing up for the truth when the lies come your way? Are you meeting people's needs? Can, can your actions be described as salt and light? Can people see Jesus in your life? Now, the thing is, I can't, I can't answer those questions for you. I can only point you to the truth only you can answer those questions and only God can answer those questions. So here's the thing. This week, <clears throat> I think the solution here is to, to go and get alone with God and ask God to reveal to you where you're not living up to being what he's created you to be. That's the answer. And it always is. You fall down on your face in sin, what do you do? You go back to God and you get close to him. Right? Draw near to him through prayer. Draw near to him in the word and ask him to change your heart because the truth is you can't change your heart. Ask him to change your heart and ask him to strengthen you and to grow you. Get alone with him and ask those questions and then walk in faith that he's going to honor that and show you where you need to grow. Because you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, it would just be easier if you just sent me a book with a list of things to do. But I realize that's not what you're after. You're not after my behavior. You're after my heart. You're not after to change what I do you're wanting to change who I am. And I rejoice in that. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me to walk in this truth. Help me to understand that my life is a reflection about who I am in you. And I praise you, Lord, that you actually have been able to reveal to many of us, including a knucklehead like me, that I am indeed saved and I can have assurance in that and be confident in that. But Lord, help me to recognize my shortcomings. Help me to recognize when I'm not like Christ. Help me to recognize when I'm adding to the decay and not preserving what's good. Help me to recognize when I'm not being the light that I'm called to be. Help me, Lord God, to walk this out and to continue to lean on you and trust in you. And help me not ever to get in a place where I start looking for things to do to make myself right with you. I'm not going to be right with you by what I do. If I could lose my salvation, I would have already done it. If I could, have, if I could make you, if, if it was up to me to make you happy, Lord, I'm, I failed and it will continue to fail. I praise the Lord that my standing with you is by grace. But I do ask that you reveal to me how I can be the salt and light that you call me to be so I can bring glory and honor to your name and bring those around me to know you. And I pray this to all of our hearts, Lord, that we would desire that. That you'd raise up the people in this church that have a desire and a passion to go and, and share the love of Jesus Christ with all that they come in contact with. And that through that, the entire community would hear the gospel 
and change. And I pray for revival in this church. I pray, pray for revival in this community. And I pray, Father, you would be glorified in our town and in all the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.